And please be seated. That hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, was written by a man named Robert Robinson. And Robinson knew, and he, he really understood that last line. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is, this is really one of the great hymns in the English language, and yet the man who wrote it at times struggled with periods of, of deep darkness and wandering away from the Lord. In fact, he, the story's told of him being in a carriage one time, and, and he was, uh, there, was, there was a stranger on the carriage with him, and she was humming a tune. And it was this tune, many years after he had written the song. And he said, do you like that song? And she said, I do. Do you? And he said, I do. But oh, that I could believe it. This is a hard question of the Christian life, is what happens when we struggle? You know, there's two kinds of struggles in the Christian life, and, and ultimately only the Lord knows what happened with Robert Robinson, whether he was truly a believer or not. Sometimes we struggle. We struggle to keep our grip upon our God. But there is a reality as well that some who have been in the church, perhaps who have even professed to believe in the Lord Jesus, ultimately fall away. That's what this passage that we're going to read is about. I think it's one of the hardest passages in Scripture. It's one of the hardest to understand. And in some ways, it's one of the hardest to hear because it's going to cause us to take, in a sense, a spiritual inventory of of our lives. Am am I walking with Christ is the question that this passage is going to cause us to ask. And just by way of, of reminder, we, we began last week, we actually looked at a portion of this passage in Hebrews 6 last week, and, and the pastor said some hard things. If you remember, if you've been with us, I believe this was written by a pastor to his congregation. It may have even been a sermon that was preached to his congregation, but he had to say some hard things to him. He said, you know, you've been a Christian for some time now, but you're not growing up. And he said to him, as we saw last week, it's time to grow up. Now he's going to build on that this week, and he's going to share a concern, a very real concern, that there are some who aren't going to grow up, who are actually going to fall away. Now before I read the passage, let's pray together that God would help us. God, this is indeed a hard passage. It's a hard warning for us to hear, and it's in some ways hard for us to understand. I pray that you would give us understanding, and more than that, that you would give us the humility to to take inventory of our own lives. There are likely some in this room who perhaps years ago, maybe in what feels like a different life, who professed to believe in the Lord Jesus, but now have wandered far away. And I pray that you would awaken them and indeed awaken all of us who are complacent, all of us who can at times be lukewarm 
and set our hearts on fire with zeal for the Lord Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Take the Bible in your row. If you uh, don't have one of your own, take that one. And if you don't own a Bible or don't have one that you find readable, please take that Bible home with you. The passage we're looking at is on page 1003, Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we'll do if God, for, uh, God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, the things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire, each one of you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. If you have been around this church long, you know the name of Charles Spurgeon. I, Spurgeon, I'll just call him my favorite Baptist. How about that? Spurgeon pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London for 38 years. He actually started the pastorate at age 19, and he continued until his death in 1892 at the age of 57. By age 22, Spurgeon was the most popular preacher probably on earth, and he largely remained that way, earning him the title the Prince of Preachers. Um, The story's told that one day Spurgeon was walking down the road, and he was greeted by a, a man who stumbled up to him drunk on the street, and the man looked at Mr. Spurgeon, and he slurred, Mr. Spurgeon, I've one of your converts. And Mr. Spurgeon looked upon the stumbling, bumbling man, and he said, you must be, because you're certainly not one of the Lord's converts. You know, no doubt today Spurgeon would be accused of being judgmental for a statement like that, but he was really just stating the obvious and a thoroughly biblical fact, which is authentic Christian conversion leads to Christian living. Conversion is evidenced in the Christian life over time. And so just as surely as night follows day and spring follows winter, Christian discipleship follows Christian conversion. 
And this pastor of the church that we're studying here in Hebrews, he, he's looking at his congregation. This is a congregation who they had grown up Jewish. They had grown up in the synagogues and in the temple. And they had looked at, at the things of Old Testament Judaism, and they realized that those things were not the end goal. Those were not the point. The point was what they pointed to. And so all those things of Old Testament Judaism with the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood, they all pointed to Jesus Christ. That was their point, was to point to him. And so these, these believers, they looked at the Lord Jesus and said, only Jesus can save. And they became followers of Christ. But now some of them have abandoned the faith. That's why Hebrews was written. Because some of them who have left everything, and some of them, some of this, the members of this church, they had actually lost all their earthly goods because they were following Christ. And they had been ostracized from, from their social circles for following Christ. And now some of them are beginning to fall away. And as the pastor looks into his congregation, he sees two kinds of people. He sees among the flock some who have grown comfortable and complacent in their faith. And he's going to say something that's going to make them very uncomfortable. And that is, you need to be careful because you may fall away as well. But at the same time, there's others in the church who are, are sincere believers, and they're, they're watching loved ones fall away, and they're wondering, is this, is this going to happen to me? <coughs> is my faith gen genuine? And so he wants to give them a word of comfort in the midst of that affliction. And those are the two things that we're going to look at this morning, affliction for the comfortable and a word of comfort for the afflicted. Um, you'll find a, a, hopefully a, an insert in your bulletin. To be very honest, I, I normally try to have my bulletin outline done by Thursday, and I was still struggling as of last night. This is perhaps one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to prepare, and so this morning I had a handful of people stuffing those inserts into the bulletin before the service. Two things, affliction for the comfortable and comfort for the afflicted. Let's look first at affliction for the comfortable. Remember last week, the pastor of Hebrews is, is looking out at his congregation and he's going, you know what, there's a problem and the problem is you've been believers for a while, but you're not growing. And it's sort of like when you take your child to the doctor and the doctor's going to start asking some really important questions. He's going to say, how's his height, how's his weight, and how's his diet? And the problem is, hey, you're not growing. And he said last week, you know, your diet is milk. You should be on solid food by now. You should be able to handle the heavy things of Scripture, but, but you're still getting choked on them. And, and so you have to go back to the Word. And, and we likened it to if you were a visitor here at this church and, and you came for the first time and the service started and all of a sudden uh, an 80-year-old man next to you pulls out a sippy cup and starts sipping on milk during the service. It'd be an odd scene. But the author is saying, that's, that's what's happening here. You, 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 you've professed to be believers for a long time, but, but you're not growing. You're, you're still sipping on spiritual sippy cups. And that's a problem. They're stuck in this perpetual toddlerhood. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a toddler, as long as you're a toddler. 
as long as you're three years old or less. We love children in this church. We love toddlers. We even love the sounds of toddlers. Do you know why we love the sounds of toddlers? Because it reminds us that God is raising up another generation of believers. And so those sounds that we sometimes get to hear during the service, that's God's reminder to us that he's preserving the gospel witness through another generation. We love toddlers. But it's a problem if you never grow out of toddlerhood. If you're 18 years old and still drinking out of a sippy cup and making baby sounds during the service, that's a problem. And so he says, look at verse 1. Therefore, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's saying, you know, you've learned the ABCs. Now it's time to start forming some sentences. Now it's time to, to grow that. It's time to grow up. It's time to start taking your walk with the Lord seriously. It's time to start being sermon listeners rather than sermon tasters. It's time to start being investors rather than just takers. We saw all of that last week, and I was so encouraged after last week's sermon, and I told you at the very beginning of the sermon, some of you, this is one of those sermons you never know if people are going to walk out because it's hard truth. But so many of you last week said, it's time for me to grow up. I need to start taking the word seriously. I need to grow in my walk with Christ, and there are no better sounds to a pastor's ears than that. You know, that is not how everyone responds to the hard truths of Scripture. And undoubtedly, some, when they read this letter or heard it preached, whatever it was 2,000 years ago, said something like this. You know, I, I appreciate his zeal, but I'm pretty comfortable with a Christianity that really expects nothing from me and I expect nothing from it. And to someone who is comfortable with that form of Christianity, which is not biblical Christianity at all, Jesus told us that, that it would cost us to follow him. The author of this letter is saying you need to wake up because you may be on the verge of apostasy. You may be on the verge of falling away. That's, that's what apostasy is. Apostasy is somebody who, by outward appearances, once was a believer, but they have fallen away. This is not a struggling Christian who wants to serve God, who wants to be faithful, but they struggle. The, the, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. This is someone who has professed faith but has never possessed faith. They've declared their faith, but they've never demonstrated their faith. Now, in our culture, we produce this in mass numbers. Because in our world today, and it's really been this way for the last 150 years or so, we've had a method of evangelism that says, just ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. We don't talk about things like repentance or self-denial or the cost of discipleship. And, and so we, we sell people this, and then we sort of do a bait and switch, and people start reading the scriptures. And they say, whoa, whoa, whoa you didn't tell me about all this. There's a story of, of Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was perhaps one of the most infamous, infamous criminals in America in the 1940s and 50s. He virtually controlled Los Angeles. At the height of his career, he was persuaded to attend an evangelistic service, and he showed some interest in Christianity. 
And he heard about, uh, as, as people heard about this, that Mickey Cohen, the famous, infamous Mickey Cohen, had some interest in the Lord. So some prominent Christians visited him, talked to him about accepting Christ. And late one night, after, after being encouraged to open the door to the Lord Jesus, Cohen prayed to receive Christ. And there was a great fervor. There was great excitement about this among acquaintances. But with the passing of time, there was no discernible change in Cohen's life. And finally, a, a, a believer confronted him and said, you know, if, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, you're going to have to leave this profession behind. You're going to have to leave some of these acquaintances behind. And Cohen said, listen, there's Christian football players. There's Christian actors. Christian politicians? Why can't there be a Christian gangster? And he said, you never told me about repentance. You never told me about discipleship. And he walked away. That's what apostasy is, and we breed that with this easy believism that our culture promotes in modern evangelism today. But we have to understand that was not the case in the early church. The early church took conversion very seriously and very slowly. They didn't rush to get people on the rolls of the church. And and so if somebody professed to be a believer, they would be catechized. They would go through kind of what we call our new members class, and it would last at least a year. They would learn what it was to be a believer. In fact, if if you look back at, at those things that it talks about in verses 1 and 2 about repentance from dead works and faith towards God and washings, I think that's actually the curriculum of, of the catechesis that they would have gone through, that you've been trained in these things, but you know, you should be growing up beyond those things now. The early church had very high standards of church membership. That's what makes it so astounding that some of these people who had left everything to follow Christ, who had been through a year or more of training, who had been interviewed by the leaders of the church, are now falling away. How do we understand that? How do we understand it from 2,000 years ago? How do we understand it today that there are people who make professions of faith and then eventually turn away? There's three main views of what's going on there, and I did put these in your notes. I, I always get in trouble with my sweet bride for having too many lists in a sermon, so I figured if I typed it out, then I wouldn't get in as much trouble. So if you see her, put in a good word for me. There's three views of what the deal was with these people who professed to be believers and then left the faith, especially with this warning. And the first is that it's just a hypothetical situation. It's a hypothetical warning that, that when it talks about these people who have fallen away and now can't be restored, he's warning them, but he's also saying that's not something that could actually happen. That couldn't actually happen, that somebody professed to be a believer and then fall away. Now, that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Because that's exactly what's happening in the life of the church. There are people who were were professing to be believers, but now they're falling away. So I don't think the hypothetical explanation works. The second explanation, this is very common, uh, especially among followers of John Wesley, so Wesleyan and Methodist uh, traditions, and that is that these were once genuine believers, but they lost their salvation. 
That teaches that God gives the initial grace for conversion, but the rest of the Christian life depends on our cooperation with God, and if we do not cooperate, if we fall away, then we lose our salvation. So that view says you can be a born-again believer, but not uh, persevere to the end. The third view is that those who fall away were never believers at all, though they may have appeared to be. These were people who had exposure to the gospel, who, who made a profession of faith, who were admitted to the fellowship of the church, but none of it was sincere. Now, of the three, I think the only biblically consistent understanding is the third, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. The third, though, that they had made professions of faith, but it was not sincere. They were never actually believers. Let me give you a couple reasons that that's the, the, the most biblically consistent view. First, I think that their Christian experience that's described in verses 4 and 5 indicates activity in the local church, but not necessarily a mark of conversion. And it's not necessarily a mark that they were true believers. And so it talks about they've been enlightened. That may be, it may mean baptism. That's how some of the early church fathers understood it. It may mean simply that they've been taught the truths of the gospel. It says they've tasted the heavenly gift. That may be talking about the Lord's Supper. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've, they've had fellowship. They've been part of the congregation, the communion of believers. They've tasted the goodness of the word. In other words, they've, they've heard preaching, the power of the age. That may be talking about even some of them saw or were able to do even perhaps miraculous things. It seems that Judas had been able to do miraculous things during the apostolic age. And so all those things, what they have in common is they're all benefits of being part of the local church. So he said, when he says, been enlightened and tasted the gift and tasted the goodness of the word and shared in the Holy Spirit, he's simply saying it's possible to be part of a church but never actually trust in Christ. You know, I think part of the reason he's bringing this up here is he's been talking about the Jews wandering through the wilderness, how they had seen incredible things. They had seen God lead them in a, a cloud by day and fire by night. They had seen God feed them manna from heaven. They had seen water from a rock. They had seen God part the Red Sea and still, many of them didn't believe. That's why the Apostle Paul, in Romans 9, he's talking about all the incredible spiritual privileges that Israel had. He's saying, you know, not all of them believed. And he says in Romans 9, verse 6, not all Israel belongs to Israel. Not all who are genetically descended from Israel belong spiritually to Israel. So it's possible to be part of a local church, but not trust in Christ. So that's the first thing, the first reason I think that's the best view, is it's possible to, to enjoy all those benefits and never trust Christ. Second reason this view makes sense is that it's consistent with our Lord's teaching in the parable of the sower. Look over at Matthew 13 for a moment. Our Lord tells the story of a sower who 
sows seed, and the, he, he sows the seed indiscriminately. It lands on four different types of soil. The first, it, it immediately gets gobbled up. It doesn't take root. The birds come and eat it. Uh, the third, it, it's thrown among weeds, and it pops up, but gets choked out by the weeds. The fourth is good ground. But the second is the one that's most relevant to us. It's rocky ground. Look at verse 5. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now, this is one of the few parables that that our Lord actually uh, interprets for us. Look at verse 20 as he explains the parable. He says, As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. In other words, it's an emotional conversion experience. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. In other words, our Lord is saying there are many who are going to have an emotional conversion experience. They're going to be excited about it. But, but their faith is built on that emotion, and eventually life's going to get hard, and they're going to fall away. That's exactly what's happening here. Third reason this, the, that this view makes sense, that they appeared to be believers but weren't, is because salvation is all of grace. That's how salvation works. It is God's grace alone. You see, Scripture teaches that for somebody to be converted— To truly be converted, the Holy Spirit must give us new life. Look with me at John chapter 3 for a moment. John 3, this is Nicodemus, has come to our Lord. He was a leader among the uh, Jewish religious establishment. He comes to Jesus at night and Ask Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What Jesus is saying here is salvation is all God's doing. It's not a cooperation between God and man where God does his part, we do our part. And if we don't do our part, we can lose our salvation. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that it is all God's doing. It is by grace alone that we've been saved. If salvation is by grace alone, how could we then lose salvation through disobedience? How could we once be saved by grace but then lose it by sin? And if so, how many sins can we commit before we lose our salvation? Have you ever thought about that? If somebody says you can, lose your, you can once be saved and then lose your salvation— How many, is it like seven or 70 times seven? Either way, I've probably broken that number today. If if you can lose your salvation 
if you can be truly saved and lose your salvation, that means that when Ephesians 4 says that God predestined you before the foundation of the world, he did not anticipate. Here's what you're saying if you say you can lose your salvation. He did not anticipate your sin, and your sin ruined his plans. That would make your sin bigger than God's grace. Uh, That's not true at all. In fact, that's part of what's so amazing about the grace of Jesus Christ is that he knows the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. He knows all the sins you are going to commit in your lifetime, and he chose to die for us anyways. And this leads to the fourth reason that I take the view that this person was never a believer at all. That's because of what the Bible teaches about the perseverance of the saints. That means if God has caused somebody to be born again, he will bring them, he will cause them to persevere to heaven. Now, if you're looking at the second page of your handout and you're wondering if I'm going to go through all 10 or so of those verses, I'm not. That's your job this afternoon. I want you to see what the scriptures teach about the perseverance of the saints, that those whom God redeems, those whom God regenerates, God will preserve. And I'm just going to go over a couple of those verses. Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's talking about being born again, conversion, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What God begins, God will finish. He doesn't redeem some people and then change his mind and go, you know what, he was a lot harder of a case than I thought he was going to be. I give up. What God begins, God will complete. Or Ephesians 4, verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of completion, of redemption. Uh, When do we seal something? When we want to protect it, when we want to preserve it. And we are, if you're a believer, you are preserved, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But I think the clearest biblical case for the perseverance of the saints, that those who come to true saving faith being uh, kept until the end, is John 10, verses 27 and 28. Our Lord says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If somebody has sincere faith in the Lord Jesus, turning from sins, turning to Christ, he will keep you to the end. If you are truly his, he'll not let you go. What do we take away from that? We need to realize that no matter how profound of spiritual experience we've had, no matter how emotional of a conversion experience we may have had, no matter how active we've been in the church, it is possible we could do all those things and not know Christ. That was the case of some in this church. You know, many people trace their their Christianity back to some event where they, they, they came up for an altar call or when they prayed the sinner's prayer. But there is no evidence of God's work in their life for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And that's a problem. 
You see, when a person is truly converted by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just enter into a relationship with God, but into a relationship with God's Word. That's what Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And he finds himself, if, if, if you want to know, am I truly a believer? You need to ask the question, do I have a new and growing love for God's Word? Because it's in God's Word that he meets with me. The Holy Spirit plants in the hearts of believers a desire to walk with God and to love the things of God. And what's the destiny of the apostate? These people who have wandered away. Look at verse 4. We're, that's kind of the start, and then we're going to skip to verse 6. For it is impossible, and then look down at verse 6, to restore them again to repentance, for they are, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is the most stark warning in the New Testament against false faith. If someone becomes apostate, it's saying, they can't be restored to repentance. Now, what does that mean? Because we likely have people in this room who, who were raised in the church but have walked away. Does this mean that you cannot now turn to Christ? Uh, no. In fact, if you have any sense of spiritual interest, that seems to be the Holy Spirit's work preparing you, drawing you. This is speaking of somebody who once was in the church but now has hardened their heart against the gospel. It has so hardened their heart that they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the person who, who renounces the gospel. And what it says is that for those who denounce the gospel, they will one day be denounced by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. It says they are once again, they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up for contempt. In other words, these are people who, if they had been there when Jesus was crucified, they would have gladly shouted, crucify him. They've turned their backs on Christ. How do you tell the difference between a wandering Christian and an apostate? They start the same way, but the wandering Christian will return. The apostate will keep going. Now, which is which? Ultimately, only the Lord knows. But that's part of why we don't, we don't play with sin. We don't let ourselves wander insofar as we can help it because we don't know ultimately. We don't know when our wandering may end, and many have thought that they were just taking a short wander, and they have gone away from Christ. And so the spiritual destiny of the apostate, look at verses 7 and 8. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. In other words, when the land receives rain and it grows a crop, it bears fruit, it's a blessing. This is talking about believers whose lives look like believers. But look at verse 8. If it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Listen. Friends, if the sum total of your Christian life is to show up to church occasionally, 
to occasionally say a prayer before mealtime. But there's no regular commitment to the scriptures. There's no zeal for the gospel. There's no service to the kingdom. Then there's a good chance you're not a believer. And that's what verse 8 is saying. It's, it's bearing thorns and thistles. He wants them to realize we're dealing with matters of heaven and hell. And, and if this makes you uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Because we need to take spiritual inventory of our lives. Those of us who may be comfortable in our faith, we need to be made uncomfortable. To take spiritual inventory and to ask the question, do I, am I bearing fruit? Am I really a believer? Or am I on the off-road towards apostasy? Faith that can't be tested is faith that shouldn't be trusted. And so we ought to ask about the, the genuineness of our faith. We ought to examine ourselves. Have you, let me ask you, friends, do you take what you hear week by week and add faith to it? Or do you build your view of Christianity around simply keeping your life comfortable and not giving up or sacrificing anything to follow Christ? That is American Christianity, something that costs us nothing and offers us nothing. If that's you, please seek the Lord while he may be found. Turn to the Lord Jesus while your heart has not yet become so hardened to him that you cannot turn. That's the first category of person, is this person who is overly comfortable and complacent in their faith, and they need to be made uncomfortable. But the second category of person that Hebrews is written to is, is the person who has tender conscience. And there are people in this room who have heard this sermon, and they're sincere believers, but their conscience is so tender, and now they're wondering, am I a believer? How, how, much, how do I know? Have I done enough? And so while on the one hand, God uses this passage to warn the comfortable and complacent Christian, he wants to comfort the afflicted conscience by giving you the full assurance of Christian hope. You know, that's the author's goal here. It's not to leave you in suspense about whether you're a believer, but he wants to give you an opportunity for assurance. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown uh, for his name in serving the saints as you still do and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end in other words brothers and sisters i see the labor of, that you do for the lord i see how much you love god and how much you love one another and how you serve one another and those he says they're they're evidences of sincere biblical faith you love the gospel and it's evident. Now, he's not saying those things save them. He's saying those are evidences that they have been saved. It's proof of Jesus' work in them. Isn't it incredibly comforting, friends, that our salvation does not rely on what we have done, but rather what the Lord Jesus is doing in us? My comfort is not in my grip on Christ, but that he has a grip on me. 
One of my seminary professors lived in India for many years as a missionary, and his, uh, the, the village where he lived, it w- was extremely difficult terrain, and on both sides of his house, there were these steep, rocky uh, cliffs, and there were very narrow stairways to go up and down them, and, and, and it was really dangerous. If you were to, to lose your step, you would tumble to your own death. And so he would take them very carefully, and he would walk with his young son at times. He would have to take his young son into the village, and he would hold his son's hand tightly. And one day his son looks up at him and says, Dad, don't worry, I'm holding on to you. And Dad says, no, son, it's, it's me who's holding on to you. You know, that's my hope as a Christian, not my grip on Jesus, but his grip on me. Some days my grip isn't very good. But if I were to die right now, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I would go to heaven. Well, of course you do. You're a pastor. Nah, actually more is expected of me as a pastor. It's not the basis of me being a pastor. It's not the basis of my godliness. It's not the basis of whether I'm a good teacher or preacher or not. If I died right now, I can say with absolute certainty I would go to heaven because 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus died on the cross and bore my sins. And I am absolutely certain that nothing can pluck me out of his hand. I've committed my heart, my soul, my eternity to him. And there is nothing that can pluck me out of his hand. What about you? What's What's your assurance? What's your hope for eternity? If it's, you know, I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was 10 years old. If it's I walked an aisle. If it's that I was an elder in the church. That is not a faith that you can trust in. A faith that you can trust in is that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I have entrusted my soul to him and he will not let me go. I opened with Charles Spurgeon. Let me close with Charles Spurgeon again. He says, It's not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It's not even thy faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit that saves us. That's where our assurance lies. Not in what we have done, not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Simply trusting in what Jesus has done. How do we apply this text? First, I want to plead with you, friends. Please do not allow spiritual privileges to deceive you. Because oftentimes I will ask people that question Are, are you a believer? Are you going to heaven? And they'll say, yes, and they'll talk about some experience in the church. They'll talk about, they used to teach Sunday school, they did this, they did that. Let me plead with you that if your, the grounds of your hope have something to do with your spiritual activity, you may not be a Christian. The grounds of your hope must be Jesus Christ. And so go home And please look at your life and say, am I trusting in the spiritual privileges that I've had? It didn't work for Israel. It didn't work for these Hebrew uh, apostates, and it won't work for you. It must be Jesus himself that you trust in. That's the first application. Take inventory of what you're trusting in. Second, 
we need to realize that some people who appear to be believers, until Christ returns, there will always be some who will appear to be believers but move in the direction of apostasy. You have seen that in your own life. You've seen that in this church. Folks who ostensibly were believers had a profession of faith and yet have drifted away from Christ and even have turned against Christ. And it's going to happen more and more because it's going to become more and more costly to profess to be a Christian. It used to be 50 years ago. You said you're a Christian. That was the way to move up in society. Now it's the way to be an outcast from society and there are many who will jettison the faith because it's not worth it. But beloved, let them do so over your pleading with them. Plead with them as people begin to distance themselves from the church and you haven't seen them for weeks. You haven't seen them for months. Reach out to them. People who once professed to be believers who grew up in the church but have wandered away, plead with them to come and trust in Jesus Christ. If they're going to walk out of the doors of the church, make sure they step over you to get out. Finally, all of us need to hear the call to repent of lukewarm, lazy, sluggish Christianity. That's what we saw last week, is he said you have sluggish ears. You hear the sermon, but you don't listen. Well, look at verses 11 and 12. We desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, Let us not be sluggish. Let us not be lazy in our pursuit of Christ, but like the cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, let us seek him with our whole hearts, even to the point that we could say, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. In Revelation 3, Jesus addressed the church at Laodicea. He said, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And listen to his final warning. He says to them, be zealous and repent. If your pursuit of Christ has been sluggish, and to some extent all of us have, let's hear this word, to be zealous and repent and seek the Lord with all our hearts as we pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that at times it confronts us and it addresses the hard parts of our life, perhaps where we have sought to conform Christianity to our own comforts, to conform it to our own uh, complacency. Stir us up. Bring us to repentance that we would no longer be complacent, but that we would truly seek Jesus Christ with all our hearts. I pray this in Christ.